Want more of the Josh Scanlon podcast? Please. Please. Here you go. The Josh Scanlon podcast starts right now. Good morning, my friends. Josh Scanlon with the Josh Scanlon Podcast. Welcome to episode 10. And we're just moving right along as we journey down our path on, on successful financial planning and retirement planning in particular. So today's topic is going to be very interesting to you, especially if retirement planning is on your mind, as it is for most people. We're going to talk about the number one thing you can do to be happy in retirement. There's one thing scientifically proven, I'll tell you. And when I share you this secret, you're going to be like, what? <laughs> it's going to be so obvious. You're going to want your refund for listening to this podcast. But just because it's obvious and just because it's easy to follow once you figure it out doesn't mean it's going to be simple for you to accomplish. So let's get into it. Um, the number one thing you can do for your retirement happiness is not have a mortgage, not have any debt, but a mortgage in particular. And that is all there is to it. I'm going to share you with you a couple of research papers that we have that's available on my blog at the heritagewealthplanning.com um, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is one. And then we talk, uh, we have another research paper from Towers Watson who they, uh, they've done some analysis as well. And both of these things are going to be incredibly interesting and they're both going to go together hand in hand. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people miss it, but if you don't have debt in retirement, you will be happier. And there's just no two ways around that. Now, one of the things that ticks me off about the investment advisory industry, again, investment advisory is not the same as financial advisory. Investment advisory advises you on your investments and how to maximize your return in theory. I won't get into my uh, my issues on that, but let's just say that they had a, uh, they were able to generate higher returns than you could do for yourself. Let's just pretend that could happen. So if you're an investment advisor and you're paid for investment fees for the assets that you manage under advisement, if someone had a mortgage of 200,000 or someone had a ability to pay off that mortgage with $200,000 that came out of your investments, what do you think the investment advisor would pr propose to you? Well, they're going to propose that you keep the investments with that person and not pay off your mortgage. And they're going to use some basic mathematics. They're going to say, look, we think we can get 6% rate of return on your investments and your mortgage is only costing you three and a half percent. And that three and a half percent is deductible. And that is true. That is absolutely true. They say on average, we think we can get six because that's what we've done or seven or eight, whatever you want to use. As long as we can outperform your investments, your mortgage, net of fees and net of taxes, we, you should keep your investments in our portfolio and just continue to pay down your mortgage. The problem with that, of course, is that if that were true, then everyone should be 100% fully leveraged. They should never buy or have any equity in their home. They should borrow against their home to 100% and turn around and invest that in the stock market or bond market or whatever the, the issue is going to be. No one does that. And actually, no one should. And the reason is because we know it's risky inherently. And that's the same scenario when an investment advisor says you should keep your money invested with him or her in order to uh, beat the, the mortgage that you're going to pay. So a couple of things going on there. First and foremost, a lot of people aren't even deducting their interest because they have the standard deduction anyway. And so, I, I, I mean, I've talked about this to him blue in the face, but if you're married filing jointly and you do not have itemized deductions, which include your property taxes, your sales tax, your real, your uh, mortgage interest, your charitable giving, if they're not more than $24,000, you have no deductions. You don't, you have a standard deduction. It's that simple. 
And so if your mortgage interest is costing you $7,000 a year and $3,000 a year in property tax, you need $14,000 a year in other exempt and deductions in order to be uh, qualified for itemized deductions. And if you don't have that, then the, the argument about mortgage interest deductions is just silly. And, and every, well, I don't want to say everyone knows that. Everyone should know that who's in the financial advisory business. Again, investment advisors are not financial advisors. So I'm not going to hold them accountable for not knowing that. And they might. But anyway, at the end of the day, that's just a fact. If you have a married filing jointly and you do not have $24,000 of deductions, inherently the deduction port of that argument where you should keep your mortgage and invest the money instead is, is just not. It's not doesn't exist. Let me just give you a second on that. Even if you had $25,000 of deductions, okay, you're getting another $1,000 of deduction above the standard deduction. <laughs> That's not much, my friends. $1,000 more than the standard deduction. If you're in a 12% tax bracket, you're saving all of $1,200. No, $120. Uh, That's it. Not a huge deal there. So I just, I, I think that argument is kind of squishy. And I think it can be easily uh, beatable. Uh, secondly, mortgage interest is guaranteed and is fixed. If it's not, if it's variable, it's not only not fixed, it could be hurt, go against you, or it could go increase as the rates go up. In fact, let's just take a look right now at the ten-year Treasury bond because if you had a ten-year Treasury bond, um, I just got to see what it's paying right now. Bear with me just one second. The ten-year Treasury, which is a proxy for all interest rates, it's at uh, two point eight five right now. And so two years ago, it was a half that, you know, one and a half. And so if you had a variable rate mortgage uh, tied to the, you know, if they're using a 10-year treasury bond as a proxy, you're going to wake up, you're going to have a higher interest rate. And that's just a fact. Now, your investments have outperformed that over the last two years. I don't, I don't uh, have any qualm with that whatsoever. But the question is, what happens when we have a bear market, when the investments don't outperform that? You're still going to pay whatever the rate is of return that you're paying to the bank on your fixed rate mortgage or your variable rate mortgage. That interest is still accumulating regardless of what your investments are doing. And the simple thing I look at it like this, if you have $200,000 as a mortgage and you have $200,000 in investment that you're thinking about paying down to pay off that mortgage, and the markets go down 20%, well, now that $200,000 of investments that you had is only worth one sixty, which would not even pay off the entirety of your mortgage, and yet your mortgage is still costing you three and a half, four, four and a half percent, or whatever the rate is at that time, and and that's what happens with the markets is they go down about twenty to twenty five percent every four years or so, and that is not crazy talk to think that it could happen again. In fact, it hasn't happened for a, a pretty significant amount of time now, so it's an inevitable that we're going to have another bear market again at some point. I have no clue when. I I don't know. I hate to say I don't care because I certainly do, but at the end of the day, I can't control it. So it's out of my ability. I just, I pay no mind to it, but it's going to happen. And so for the guy or a lady who tells you to keep your investments in the market because we can outperform, that is true in the long term. Absolutely. That is true. But in the short term, when we have a 20% decline, now that 200000 is only worth one sixty, and you still have that $200,000 of debt. It doesn't look very fun at that point when you could have paid the whole thing off. Uh, thirdly, don't forget, if it's not an IRA, there are taxes that need to be considered too on investment management. So even though we can deduct potentially the interest on your mortgage loan, uh, you, you're still gonna pay taxes on it on the investment returns that you get, be it capital gains or interest or dividend income. That's still in taxable income to you. 
which for some reason the investment advisors uh, tend to overlook. So at the end of the day, I don't buy for two seconds the idea that the markets are gonna outperform your mortgage. It will in the long run. The question is, can you hang in the long run? And if you could, then you might as well just leverage your whole house and put in the market and no one's gonna do that. So I think that's the end of that debate. I would not, if I have enough cash reserve to pay out the mortgage, I want to do that. Now, I don't want to be cash poor. And I've talked about this a million times where you have no money, but you have a fully paid off house. That, that, that's not what I'm talking about either. That does no good because it takes cash to put food on the table. All the equity in the world does not put food on the table. And you can't go to the bank and say, I want to borrow against my house necessarily um, unless, you have, unless you have collateral, which is your home, uh, unless you have credit, which is how your credit history is or unless you have cash flow. And so if you have no job, no banks are going to loan you against your home in order to give an income stream for like a home equity line of credit. It's not going to happen. That is where reverse mortgages are actually becoming, a, uh, I think, more and more favorable actually in the, the market because reverse mortgages, you don't need an income stream. You don't need cash flow to borrow against your home to create an income stream, which is, which is actually pretty fantastic. All right. So let's go back to the studies. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, they said explicitly Housing was the greatest expense in average dollar amount and as a share of the household bu budget for older households being above age of 55. By far and away, the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, looked at the average um, person, household who's over 55 years old, and a third of all expenditures were attributed to housing. A third of all expenditures were attributed to housing. Now, I get this all the time. Well, how about healthcare? And I've heard this a million times. I've heard it a million times. Healthcare expenses do increase the most for people as they go from 55 to 64 to 65 to 74 and so on and so on. But even after those increases, those even over 75 years old spend only 15% of their income on healthcare where they're still spending 36% on housing. So yes, the increases go up, but the... But it's starting at such a low amount that even with the significant increases, their housing is still dwarfing the expense they're spending on healthcare, And that's just a fact. So everyone in the mom, ah, they say, oh, my goodness, my housing is going way up. Or my health insurance, my health costs going way up. Yeah, it's going way up, but it's starting way low. But your housing isn't going way up because it's starting way high. In fact, now we got, if you're you know, basically 65 years old, a third of your income is going to housing. But if you're 75 years old, the average uh, person in the United States now, the average household, 37% of their expenditures is going to housing. So it went from 33% to 37%, not a huge increase, whereas healthcare basically went from 5% to 15%, which is a significant increase, but it's still significantly lower than what the average household's expenditures are on housing. It's not even close. And in fact, the scary thing is, is that the BLS also points out the proportion of families with heads of age 55 or older households, with heads of households age 55 or older, housing debt has increased steadily from 24% in 1992 to 42% in 2010. And I assure you, it's only getting worse now. So housing has gone up. The housing expenditures goes up as people get older. The amount of debt that people have as they get older has gone up from 24% to 42% as well. And on top of that, more than a third of people who are retired, essentially, ages 75 and above, have 37% of their expenditures going to their housing. 
All right. So uh, more than a third of their housing for a retiree over 75 is going to housing. Their expenditures going to housing. Even retirees who are households of 65, over a third is going to housing as well. And that's just a fact. Healthcare is way at the bottom. It does increase. It does. I'm not going to say exponentially, but it does increase, but still not even close to what housing is. Now, ironically, Tower Watson, Towers Watson did a study which shows that retirement happiness is declining and rather significantly. Huh. Why is that? And if I can't show you this, but if you go to my blog, uh, you will see what I'm talking about here. And if you look in 1998, a third now two thirds of all people uh, in 1998, uh, let's see here. Yeah, satisfaction rates. Two thirds of all people who had guaranteed income streams, uh, Social Security, if they annuitized some of their accounts, uh, they were they had uh, they had retirement happiness. But now it's only 55 percent. 55%. If you had no income that was annuitized, you only had 58% happiness and now it's 50%. So let me just reiterate that because I know it's confusing. If you had no money annuitized, now Towers Watson will show you this is why you need annuity. And I, I completely disagree. I mean, it might be, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is for the average retiree in 1998 who had no money annuitized, i.e. they're relying on social security, their portfolio, 58% of those people were happy in retirement. They, they said they, were, they, were, they had satisfaction in retirement. Fast forward to 2010, only half of those people had a, are satisfied in retirement. Now, in 1998, 67% of the people who had a half of their portfolio annuitized were happy in retirement. Fast forward in 2010, only 55%. So we have a significant drop of people who are happy in retirement uh, either regardless of where their money is coming from, from Social Security is, is first and foremost, but if they annuitize their portfolio or not, if half of their income was annuitized through, you know, basically buying an insurance product, uh, an income annuity through an insurance company like USAA or something like that, 67% of the people were happy in 1998, only 55 now. If they had no uh, portion of their portfolio annuitized 58 percent of the people are happy in 1998 and only 50 percent of the people are in this 2010 and I'm, i can almost sure he's dropped now why is that and if you look at the chart there's an increasing level of debt mortgage debt and we know for a fact household costs are going up and up and up and up and there's a decreasing level of retirement satisfaction coincidence no we know explicitly that people, when they have guaranteed income, this is not a pitch for annuities. I'm not wanting you to say that. But what I'm trying to show you is that when people have income that's guaranteed to match their debt levels, they are happy. That's just a fact because they don't have to worry about it. When people do not have income that's guaranteed and they have an increasing debt level, they are not nearly as happy. That's just a fact. When people have income that's guaranteed and their debt levels are rising, they are less happy as well. So of those three scenarios, the worst one for retirement happiness is to have debt, regardless of where your income is coming from. The next worst is to have debt, but you do have annuities covering a portion of that debt. The, the most happiest person who does not have any debt and they have annuitization as well because they know their income is taken care of. Now, if you have an annuitization and you have an increasing debt level, you will be happier than the people who have no annuitization and they and they have a debt level too, that's for sure. So it's of those three models, the people who have no debt are the happiness, or I guess four models, the people who have 
uh, debt but is covered by an annuity is the second happiness. The people have a debt and is not covered by an annuity is at least happy. That's for sure. And so if those, I guess there's three. Basically, there's three. If you have debt, you're going to be the least happy. That's just a fact. And you can see the chart in front of the very eyes as I'm looking at it right now. And this is why you should go to my, my blog is that as people get older, they have more debt, more mortgage debt, more household debt and is making them less happy. One of the ways to rectify that is by annuitizing a portion of your portfolio. Uh, but that's a sidebar. The main way to do it is to pay off your stupid debt, to pay it off without question. If you pay it off, you're going to be happier. That's just part and parcel of the studies that we see. So according to BLS, there have been an increase of roughly 65% of households over the 55 years of age that have mortgages over the past 20 years. All right. It's, the Towers Watson study shows that retirees level of satisfaction has dropped since the 90s. So it's not a coincidence, not a coincidence. There is a factual basis to people's satisfaction and happiness, retirement on paying off their debt. Pay off your debt, my friends. Don't annuitize, don't annuitize, don't annuitize unless you don't. If you have a debt, just pay it off. Do not fall for the trap that your investment portfolio can outperform your debt. It's simply it could on paper and reality is just not likely to happen. The moral of the story, the secret to happiness retirement is not having any debt. No other way around that. Again, don't be cash poor and equity rich or house rich. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying at the end of the day, have no debt. The second secret, to be perfectly honest with you, is if you have some of your income annuitized. That's a fact. If you're afraid of annuities because some guy, uh, Ken Fisher, says I hate annuities, he's not talking about income annuities, my friends. He's talking about variable annuities. He's not talking about income annuities. The academics, the economists are all over, the, all over it now saying income annuities are a wonderful thing to have for retirees. I'm not pitching that. I just, at the end of the day, the two things stand out to me paying off debt and having a portion of your income annuitized. If you have those two things, you're going to be happier, but it all comes down to paying off debt. So the secret I've just shared with you to unlock retirement happiness, pay off your debt, pay off your debt, pay off your debt. Well, I hope this helps guys. As always go to the Heritage Wealth Planning YouTube channel at Heritage, uh, to type in Heritage Wealth Planning on YouTube to see the visual of this. Go to my blog at Heritage Wealth Planning. Just click on the link that says blog on the top right. And, uh, and, and don't forget to like me on Facebook and subscribe on YouTube, comment, email me, the whole thing. I, I'd love to hear what's on your mind about this stuff. Uh, the song of the day today is going to be one of my favorites of all time by John Hyatt. I'm not sure if you ever heard of John Hyatt. He's kind of like an Americana rock and roll guy. Uh, rock, you know, rock from yeah, just rock and roll, maybe a little bit of a country sound to it. Um, just a, Americana rock and roll, the rock and roll is just that I've liked, um, not pop rock by stretch of the imagination. And on his album, uh, the Tiki bar is open, probably only a couple good songs on there for me actually. But the one song that's always, you ever get a song and it just, oh man, you hear it and it just makes your hair rise or, you know, get goosebumps. It does something to you emotionally. And this song come home to you. Oh man. It just, it reminds me of me. And uh, every time I hear it, I just I get emo not emotional, like I'm crying, but, you know, it just gives me goosebumps. I love it. And the first lyric goes, there's a mad little kid at the top of the stair and his eyes, they gather no light. And his mom and his dad, they're too high to care. And his cries drift off in the night. And he goes, yeah, I've been that kid. Yeah, it's true. And I've been both of those parents, too. And I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed when I've lost my way. 
but I'll do anything just to come home to you. And it just, man, uh, that's where you got to break the chains, my friends. If your folks are, uh, you got to break it. You know, if your folks are alcoholics or abusers or drug addicts, you just, you got to break it. You got to break the chain. Don't be putting that stuff on your own kid. And then the last stanza, there's a meanness inside and it shivers my bones. And that's a thing about mercy, I guess. There's no man so wicked he cannot come home and nor so good he passes each test. And the, as the fires of memories burn me, the grace of your love returns me to this most traveled of highways when I do anything just to come home to you. And again, I tell you, there's a meanness inside and it shivers my bones, man. Don't we all have that? I know I do. You just, oh man, just feel like just pummeling things and not just people, but just you get anger and it's vicious and that's just a devil. It's easy to fall victim to hate and anger and it feels good for a second to get that out. But man, it is always going to just, you're always going to be sorry. But man, in that one second feels good. There's a dopamine that just rushes your brain. It feels good to release the anger and you're always going to regret it. You'll always regret it. Don't do it. And that's why if you drink the drink, uh, it keeps it just it, the prohibitions that your body's telling you not to follow that path is, is reduced when you're drinking. It just really is. That's why I get, and no one's ever done a study on this, but I guarantee if they did the vast majority of violence, I guarantee is when some guy has been drinking. I guarantee it because it just reduces your prohibitions and you do things you otherwise would not have done. The consciousness that is in your soul, that's in your soul, is it stops you from doing bad things. And uh, when you drink, and or I don't know about high so much because I'm not familiar with that, but I certainly am familiar with being drunk. And it'll, it just it reduces your ability to hold back. And if you have that meanness inside, and most of us, I think all of us do, it's easier to come out, but don't forget there's that. And what John says, that's a mercy about, that's the thing about mercy, I guess, because God's always going to forgive you. <laughs> he doesn't care. God says, Hitler, Stalin, if you come to me on bending me and you believe in me, but not just believe in me because Satan believed in me, but ask mercy, I will forgive you. Now, a lot of people say, why did God do that? Why did God do that? You know, he killed all these people. He created so much chaos. I don't know what God does. We're human beings. But God says explicitly, you get on bended knee, you believe in me, and you ask for forgiveness, and you will be forgiveness. You will be forgiven. Stalin, Mao, Hitler, all the evil people that our world has seen will be forgiven if they just swallow their pride and ask for forgiveness. It doesn't matter. Because we all... Now, I might not be killing people like Hitler, but man, I got my sins as do you, my friend. We've all sinned against God, which is why Jesus says just looking at a lady with lustful thoughts is the same as committing adultery. Is he saying that because he wants you to be pure and wind, as the wind-driven snow? No, he's saying that because you can't be as pure as the wind-driven snow. Just the thought, the look has created the sin in your heart which means you've created, committed adultery in your heart, which means you've violated God's will and you cannot escape that. We've all violated his will and we all have the ability to be forgiven just by asking for it. And so let me go back to where he says, there's no man so wicked he cannot come home, like you know Hitler, Stalin, Mao, but no so good he passes each test. And I'm not sure John's religious connotations. I don't even know if he wrote this. Well, it says, yeah, songwriter's John. John Hyatt, 
but man, there is no one so good. He passes each test. Don't go for life thinking that you're going to, you're such a good person that your good works are going to be rewarded in heaven. Yeah. God wants to do good works as James says in the Bible, in the, in the new Testament, but your good works, if you don't have the ability to swallow your pride and seek God's redemption, you're not going to do anything, man. Yeah. It's wonderful. If you're going out there, going to the food kitchen, all that. But if you feel you don't need God, your pride is going to dwarf your good works. You need to be saved. And the only way you are saved is by getting on your knees and asking for it. There's no other way around that. Now, that's not mutually exclusive. That does not mean I'm saved. I can go steal money and ask for God's forgiveness. God will forgive anybody. That's for sure. But he will forgive only if it's truly in your heart where you're trying you're saying my good works aren't to make me look good in God's eyes is because I'm a sinner and I need to be given to what God has given me to other people as well. And God will forgive you if you ask, but uh, it's tough for people who've committed all these good works to ask because they think they're good people and good people are naturally, well, I'm a good person. Why do I need God? Just remember, there's no one so evil that he cannot come home and no one so good that he passes Jesus' test. And so even if you think you've done so many travesties, don't follow that Satan bringing you down there. He's asking, he's saying you can't be forgiven. And Satan's a lying scumbag. He's a cheater. He's a liar. He will do whatever it takes to get you there. Read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters and you'll see the words of Satan as through the eyes of C.S. Lewis, the greatest Christian apologist of all time. You'll read about what Satan will do to put the wool over your eyes so you don't see the light that is God. He will lie. He will cheat. He will steal to get you to turn away from God. On the other hand, Satan's just as good as saying, oh, you're such a good person. You don't need God. Don't fall for it, my friends. Don't fall for it because you are not. There's no one good. We're all sinners. The only one good was the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way around that. No other way around that. And we're all sinners and we all need salvation. Each and every one of us, each and every one of us, Mother Teresa needed salvation. And she rightly said it herself, as do I, as do you. And we will never be as good as Mother Teresa. But if Mother Teresa needed salvation, well, certainly you and I do too. And we'll never be as good. And the only way to get it is by getting on our hands and knees. It'll never be because of works that we do. All right. Well, I hope you find this informative. This song is wonderful. It does sometimes bring a tear to my eye. And I just say, man. John, those words are divine because they're hitting me hard. And I hope you like the song. And I will see you next time on the Josh Scanlon Podcast. Thanks, guys.